thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hey everyone, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello, and this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we're trying something different. We're airing an authentic media snapshot, as we call it. It's a portion of one of the shows that are military aviation based from our friends over at Authentic Media. I think you're going to enjoy it. Here we go. I've got the other one. Select back two. Select back two. Shoot him. I don't got time. Got the second one. I got the second one on the nose right now. Hey, I'm high cover on you. Get a rock. Get a rocky rock. Rocky rock. This is Authentic. You're welcome to the beginning of Authentic's episode on the AIM-9 missile. I'm Scott Roger Chafee, and I'm here with Brian Sunshine Sinclair. Pardon me. How you doing, Sunshine? Doing well, Roger. I enjoyed our little uh, back and forth there, and uh, I guess we could roll up our sleeves and get into it if you like. Let's get into it, because we're here to talk about the AIM-9, better known as the Sidewinder. And I think it needs little introduction, but Brian, I'm just going to toss right over to you. You know, let's talk about how we got to what is very possibly today the premier within visual range infrared missile in the world. Sure thing. And uh, let me back up. So, you know, I did some operational tours in the F-18, mm-hmm. but sure. and, and I respected the AIM-9 and, and we flew with the AIM-9 Mike and X, and we'll get into those variants, if you will, in the in the discussion later. But I didn't really have the thorough appreciation or really the thorough background knowledge to fully appreciate the Sidewinder until I got my VX-31 test tour in China Lake in Ridgecrest, California. So right. and that was because that is the home of the Sidewinder, right? Okay. And so as I, I learned more about Dr. William McLean, the kind of father of the Sidewinder and, and the iterations it went through, it just, uh, I, I kind of geeked out, I'll be honest with you, and it became a very fascinating story of kind of technical ingenuity mm-hmm. as well as operational application. All right, and I'll, I'll step through that to explain exactly what I mean by that. But there's some novel concepts that were built into this thing that hadn't been seen before. Some of them were passive designs, meaning it doesn't take electricity, doesn't take any kind of logic. It just happens naturally just by pretty much harnessing physics to do what you want to nice. do. And we'll get into rollerons and we'll talk about that. But anyway, yeah. so there's a lot of uh, uh, just ingenuity, we'll say, that went into that. And um, But this program actually started with the Germans. And that's mm-hmm. kind of lending to your point of the uh, segue from Star Wars or Andor, mm-hmm. really, right? So uh, think Germany, World War II, they have their buzz bombs, right? So there's mm-hmm. V1, V2. There's, there are a couple other V bombs anyway. And the V, I think, was vengeance, if that sounds mm-hmm. right. But yeah, that's correct. Uh, point being is they wanted to, instead of just ha- having it fly a certain trajectory and hit whatever was available, they thought, well, what if we actually designated targets, heat sensing or heat sources, excuse me, on the ground? What if we had a way to sense the source and then go ahead and cue the missile or really guide the missile? 
uh, into its target. So they had a project Hamburg, it was called. So the German scientists there are working on an IR sensor, an IR tracker, whatever you want to call it. And, and we'll talk about their rudimentary design that actually was incorporated into the early Sidewinders uh, using a, a, a spinning filter, if you will. Mm -hmm. But they went from there. Uh, they, they basically matured the system as much as it could be as, as a sensor, but they had yet to integrate it into any of their missiles or mm -hmm. their, their uh, buzz bombs, excuse me, to become a missile. Right. And so and then the war ended. So the war ended, obviously, hooray to the allies, right? So some of the German scientists, the, the high-ranking military officials, the technical officers, if you will, they had a choice, uh, go to jail, get shot, or you know, come over to the US and help us, right? So the allies mm -hmm. ended up divvying up a lot of the technical expertise, right? As well as the technical files or records. And over here, do you remember we had Operation Paperclip? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so- I do. All right, so we brought over Warner Von Braun, I think is a great example of Operation right. Paperclip, right? Bringing over rocket technology that NASA, uh, originally NACA, NASA is gonna use to help us with our space race, if you will. Mm -hmm. So besides that though, the, um, the German engineers came over and that, that, that Hamburg project technology, we'll call it, landed in Dr. William McLean's lap in Ridgecrest, California. Back it was called NOTS, right? Uh, Naval Ordnance Test Station which later becomes uh, NAWS Naval Air Weapons Station, China Lake, same spot in Ridgecrest there. And he starts off with a little bit of side money kind of thing. And it's more of a side project, actually, kind of a garage project. And what he wants to do is he's hoping to take, a, are you familiar with Zuni rockets? I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's indeed a rocket, right? So you just kind of fire right. it and the, the ballistics are gonna make it land wherever it lands, whether it be wind or whatever affects it. So now he wanted to turn a rocket into a missile and hopefully folks mm -hmm. at home know the difference between the two, right? It, so, well, I'll, I'll, as usual, please. I'll take the layman, yeah. layman uh, point of view. If you guide a rocket, it turns into a missile, right? Nailed it. That's exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. So, so Dr. McLean was hoping to take a Zuni rocket and be, make it become an IR missile. Mm -hmm. And so they went through some iterations, if you will. And as it turned out, uh, he, he was he was successful with it. And it's to the point that um, as he's working through this, he they're um, trying to figure out the technology and how to integrate it into a weapon. And they, uh, as you can imagine, they start getting more and more money because it seems to be going somewhere. Mm -hmm. And they start to get some test pilots that are going to help with the uh, test and evaluation portion of it. And does the name Wally Sherall sound familiar at all? Just vaguely from something <laughs> yeah. about from you good know, old yeah, from from moonshots in NASA. Yeah, there you go. Good old Mercury Seven days, right? Yeah. So it turns out Wally Sherall was actually one of the Sidewinder test pilots. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So uh, so I'm going to start attaching some years to everything, if you will, to kind sure. of put it into perspective. So in 1946, Dr. William McLean gets the information and starts his garage project on the mm -hmm. um, on the Sidewinder itself. Right. And then in 1950, they actually came up with the name Sidewinder. And Roger, do you have any idea why they called it a sidewinder? Well, I think I do. And you can tell me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is at the time, um, guidance is, is probably the wrong term, but I'm going to say guidance. The guidance system was such that it was an absolute command to the uh, flap or the aileron. It either went hard left or hard right to make its corrections. So it would either go hard left, hard right, hard left, hard right. And it would sort of, what's the word, you know, sidewind through the sky. So they named it after the snake. At least that's how I heard the story. 
Yeah, that's true. It did duplicate kind of the helical fashion. So mm -hmm. think Ridgecrest, California. We're talking California yeah. high desert, lots of wind, right. lots of dust, mm -hmm. lots of heat, right? So yeah. you got the sidewinder. You got the really the rattlesnakes out there, one right. of which is the sidewinder, and he does his curlicue motion. So you're mm -hmm. spot on there. The other thing is rattlesnakes, they have IR-sensing organs basically on their lips, and they use that to track and to pounce on prey. Mm -hmm. So Dr. McLean was thinking, well, here's a an IR weapon that's going to go pounce on something based on an IR mm -hmm. signature. So yeah. there's a commonality there. So let's call it the sidewinder. And so I, I didn't know that last part. I knew about the rattlesnake. I didn't knew that didn't know the uh, the time there. That's that's awesome. I'll do a little editorial aside to say, so here's the difference between a test pilot and a SWO, right? A SWO <laughs> says, you know, it's just that sort of lefty right thing. And, and the test pilot goes helical. So yeah, there we go. Oh yeah. Sorry, dude. Well, you know, <laughs> oh, good, funny, man. Right? Hey, that's no, why no, we're no, here. No, no, no. But you know what? So, so in these discussions that, mm -hmm. that kind of, uh, semantics, the word choice, diction, whatever yeah. can, can sometimes serve me well, but, uh, what, where it doesn't serve me well is at the dinner table and I'm trying to relay a story to my girls <laughs> and my wife and they're just, they're rolling their eyes like, dude, who talks like that? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> There's a fine line and I, I still I'm still trying to find it. You know what I'm saying? All good, man. I think I yeah. think we're all works in progress, especially yeah. as we you know, twenty plus years trying to transition <laughs> to civilian life. It's never actually gonna happen. But anyway, I'm sorry for the digression. Uh, you know, no, Let's, no, no, this is all good. This is all good. So um so kind of snapping back to the timeline. So you're looking at yeah. the early fifties, they call it Sidewinder, and then uh Sidewinder won actually in nineteen fifty two, and then in fifty uh fifty two also they had the first live fire. Okay. They launched it. Uh, I'm not sure if Wally Straw was the pilot or not, but anyway. And then I think that was September. And then a couple days later, it was actually September 11th of 1952. Mm -hmm. The uh, first Sidewinder shoots down the first drone in U over U.S. soil. So it's not wow. it's out of curiosity, right? They shot it out of curiosity, mm -hmm. not out of anger. Yeah. So no combat right now. We're just doing test and evaluation, right? Developmental right. test and evaluation. Yeah. So the course of the next couple of years out to spanning about 54, they have about 51 test launches and they go mm -hmm. very well to the point that the government and the basically the stakeholders say, you know what, this is a, a worthwhile investment. Let's go ahead and start production. So in mm -hmm. 1955, they start production. And uh, then in 1956, its initial operational capability, its IOC is with the U.S. Navy and they're going to strap mm -hmm. it to Grumman F9Fs as well as the FJ3 Furies. Right. And the intent, the CONEMP, the concept of employment, is actually for these Navy fighters to be able to shoot down long-range bombers. Mm -hmm. So non-maneuvering, relatively slow traveling, if you will, but high-altitude, right. right, bombers. Mm -hmm. So just keep that in mind as we kind of progress through the target sets, starting out with something big, slow, ugly, right. hanging up high. And eventually, we're going to get in the 9X where you can shoot it off bore site, right? right? So you can shoot a guy basically off your left or right wings. Yeah, yeah. So. worth remembering that these missiles all missiles were originally seen as that sort of large, slow target counter. You know, guns were still going to be used at that point for for anything maneuvering. Yes, and you, you bring up a great point. So fantastic segue into the first combat experience of the Sidewinder. Remember, mm -hmm. it's still not an AIM-9 yet. It's called the Sidewinder. Right. And that's going to be good old the uh, Chinese Communist Party in mainland mm -hmm. China are pissed off or fighting the Chinese nationalists mm -hmm. who run Taiwan, which... Right probably sounds like a lot, you know, the tensions were all the, the way. more things late... change, yeah. <laughs> the more <laughs> exactly. they say the same, right. That's so true. Yeah. So from the late 50s until now, there's mm -hmm. been tension and kind of um, uh, plans for the Chinese Communist Party to reunify 
right? Mm -hmm. Taiwan. So, so back then though, they had a uh, actual open hostilities, if you will. Right. And the, the Chinese communist party. So the uh, mainland China, we'll just call them. They had MiG 17s, mm -hmm. whereas the nationalists had F 86s. And if you were to compare and contrast the performance of both, you're going to see that the F 86 really doesn't have a snowball's chance against the MiG 17. Right. So MiG 17, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, the MiG 17, took all of the lessons learned from the MiG-15 fighting the F-86 in Korea, right? Correct. So it's, you're, you're up against the plane that was designed to be better than you. Correct. That's 120% yeah. correct. Yeah. So, yeah. so basically now, I don't want to say freedom of navigation, but they're, they're, uh, the MiG-17s have unfettered transit of the strait there. So, mm -hmm. you know, between Taiwan and mainland China, you've got, used to be called the Formosa Strait. Now it's the Strait of right. Taiwan, whatever you want to call it. And it's, it's a uh, Min- Distance, I think, was just about 100 nautical miles. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a narrow body of water. Anyway, these MiG-17s would just be high, fast flyers, and they go pretty much right over top of the F-86s. And the F-86s at, at one time only had guns, so they couldn't right. pitch up, shoot them, and they just, there was nothing they could do. So the MiGs would just run high and fast and completely leave the F-86s in the dust. And all that was true, and the, the U.S. noticed that, and they had something called Operation Black Magic. Is there a chance you've heard of that? I'm not familiar with Black Magic, no. Okay. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. So the U.S. said, well, why don't we uh, why don't we give the Taiwanese a, a little edge up, right? A little leg up, mm -hmm. excuse me, on the competition. So they brought over the Sidewinders and uh, it was a black project. So not not well known. Obviously, they integrated them onto the F-86 and then they trained the F-86 pilots on how to employ them. OK, I knew that. I didn't know the, the name was Black Magic. OK, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so 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 way back time machine again, we're looking at September 24th, 1958. Mm -hmm. There are six or more MiG-17s flying high and fast east. So from mainland China over to Taiwan, the F-86s are below them. Well, little did they know the F-86s are armed with these uh, sidewinders. Mm -hmm. So the F-86s end up loosing six uh, sidewinders. They go up and they hit four of the MiG-17s. So splash four MiG-17s, the other remaining MiG-17s kind of get in dog fights, but no one else is really taken out by a missile. And then they go their separate ways mm -hmm. and it became this. Uh, so the, the sidewinder basically was a wake up call to the, the Chinese, we'll call them the, the Chinese communists, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And it became a deterrent weapon. So I know traditionally we kind of think of deterrent weapons being a nuclear weapon of some sort. Right. right. But back in the late 50s, the deterrent weapon was actually the sidewinder and it kept the, yeah. the big 17s out of Taiwanese airspace. Right. So uh, so four, uh, sorry, six missiles were shot. 
four aircraft were shot down. But it turned out on that, that first day of the first combat, the 24th of September, 1958, one of the weapons, uh, one of the other two that didn't shoot down a plane actually hit a plane, but it didn't go high order. So it dudded. So it stayed embedded in the MiG-17. The MiG-17 pilot was able to successfully recover the plane and the missile back in China, uh, communist China. And then they basically popped it out, popped the, the weapon or the missile out of the plane and sent it back to Russia. Mm-hmm. And the, the Soviet engineers reverse engineered it. And they, they were, and some quotes I read about, they were absolutely stunned by the innovation of the, of the Sidewinder missile, both in the seeker as well as the passive dynamic systems on board that we'll talk about. Right. And uh, they came up kind of with their shameless duplicate, if you will. They called mm-hmm. it the K-13. But for us, the NATO designator is the AA-2 Atoll. Right. Does that sound familiar at Absolutely. all? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so. You know, the Soviets were, you know, never terrific at innovation in a lot of areas, but terrific at reverse engineering. They were, yes, they were. <laughs> Especially given the motivation. I know Stalin used to tell them, hey, you will make an exact replica of this captured American weapon or I will kill you. So yeah, the, uh, I mean, motivation that's, that's, high. that's motivation. Yeah, that's, that's definitely <laughs> motivation. They weren't they weren't worried about days off or. That's or right. Oh, or man, is, is Shine going to get this promotion or am I going to get it? I don't know. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm going to get shot if this doesn't go well. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so the stakes were high. We'll say that yes. right for the, uh, for the yeah. Russian engineers there. So. All right, cool. So basically the inaugural combat. Uh, display, we'll say, of the weapon. Actually, mm-hmm. one of the weapons fell in enemy hands. So then they worked on their, uh, the Soviets, excuse me, worked on their version, the AA-2 Atoll. And it turned out to be a pretty, on their side, we'll say, a very successful weapon also. So mm-hmm. uh, diving back a little bit. So through this evolution, we'll talk about the 12 different variants. But uh, yeah. over the, the next three decades, right, it's probably just like you said earlier, Scott, it's the most influential heat-seeking missile that the U.S. has and consequently the, the Eastern Bloc or Soviet Union uh, mm-hmm. countries have too. For us, there were about 110,000 Sidewinders that were produced during those three decades, those three years. Wow. And they were used by the U.S. as well as 27 partner nations. Wow. And so, yeah. um, so it was a definitely a success story. And then mm-hmm. uh, if you don't mind, we'll jump back into the timeline. So we yeah, got we about 1958, right? And the, the Chinese communists there getting scared, if you will. And then from there, uh, in 1965, so it was also the year that we joined Vietnam, right? Right. But the, uh, the Sidewinder missile program was renamed to the AIM-9. Mm-hmm. So basically from 46 when it started until 65, it was called the Sidewinder, and then it became the, um, the, the AIM-9. So you got the AIM-9, and then they started working on variants. Uh, the next instance of uh, being shot in anger or combat application, combat ops, is going to be uh, India versus Pakistan, and they're fighting over Kashmir, right? Right, which is heavily Once contested again, environment. Yeah, the more things change. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yes, yeah. And so uh, this time yeah. we backed the the Pakistanis, and they had F one hundred fours. So we put AIM nines on the one hundred fours, and they enjoyed a very nice success rate. We'll say, and mm-hmm. we call it piece of K, so probability of kill. Right. So yeah, so the piece of K was pretty high for that. Uh, and that would be 65. And at the same time, so, you know, Vietnam, the, the war started in 1955, but the U.S. joined, if you will, in 1965, right? So mm-hmm. about 10 years later into it. Yeah. And then we started using the AIM-9s on our on our aircraft, predominantly our uh, F, F-4s, right, our Phantoms. Right. It was joined by the Air Force and the Navy. 
Unfortunately, though, the results were less than stellar. So um, they looked at, and it's hard to catch numbers, especially in combat, you know, because it's just the reporting is very difficult, as you could imagine. Sure. But they, they took a snapshot from 1965 to 1968. They had launched 452 Sidewinders, and the U.S. Navy enjoyed 46 downed aircraft, and the Air Force in, enjoyed 34 downed aircraft. So in other words, shooting down bad guy aircraft, right? Right. And so when you look at that little number over a big number, that's a ratio, that's going to be your probability of kill. It turns out the, sorry, long test pilot answer, the, the probability of kill in <laughs> Vietnam was about 16 to 18%. Right. So it's kind of in the Which zone. is not super. No, not, not super at all. <laughs> not super at all. So they decided, hey, let's let's try some different variants of this. Besides an IR seeker, what if we went like with the the, char the Charlie, the AIM-9 Charlie? Uh, we'll use a radar variant. We'll see how we can mix it up. So there was a lot of tinkering, if you will. And then the next major combat action was 1982, and that would be the Falklands War. Mm -hmm. Does that kind of sound familiar? Remember who oh, was yeah. uh, fighting there? That would be, uh, well, I mean, you said the Falklands. I may consider it the Malvinas, but in which case it would be Argentina fighting Great Britain, but for the Falklands, it's Great Britain fighting Argentina. There you go. <laughs> well played. I like that. Yeah. Well played indeed. Yeah. So the Brits had their Harriers, right? The Sea Harriers. Mm -hmm. And then we strapped AIM 9s, or really they strapped AIM 9s to them. And they ended up shooting down a whole bunch of Argentinian super, pardon my accent here, super Antandar. So the Super yeah. E, the French mm -hmm. fighter, right? As well, or more of an attack, I guess, as well as the Skyhawks. So the Argentinians right. had the A 4 Skyhawk and they had the Super E. So, mm -hmm. and the uh, P sub K, the probability of kill went from in Vietnam about 16, 18%, went up to 82%. Mm -hmm. So much, much better. So like, oh, okay, hold on. Yeah. So, you know, the, the missile that was kind of looking like a good idea and then Vietnam proved it otherwise. And now the Falklands are saying, hey, this actually is a very viable weapon. Mm -hmm. And so that was in 82. Um, and then let's see, most recently, most folks probably remember in 2017, do you remember there was a, uh, unfortunately, it was an air-to-air -air miss initially, but mm -hmm. a lieutenant by a U.S. Navy lieutenant commander, actually. I think it was Mob as his call sign. And he, he tried mm -hmm. to shoot down a fitter, an S, a Syrian SU-22 right. fitter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he used an AIM-9. I think it was AIM-9X because he was in theater. And unfortunately, it, it was uh, decoyed by the flares, the Soviet mm -hmm. flares. So then they ended up, he consummated the <laughs> the intercept with the an AIM-120. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, so yeah, as we look back at this, and if, if you want to talk about this in a different tangent or a different sure. phase, that's, oh. that's fine, but we can do it now. So, sure. you know, we see some early, I think, obviously, the, the Taiwanese and the Chinese, there's an element of surprise. And, and usually any weapon that is technically viable works really well when you have that first element of surprise. And then the oh. Pakistanis do well against the Indians. Um, especially, you know, coming from a fighter that's not generally considered a great dogfighter, right? The F-104, real sure. fast in a, in straight, a straight line. line. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't turn super well. No. Uh, and then we we have, you know, a, a sort of horrible experience in Vietnam with that and, and with the Sparrow. And then the Brits come back. So how much of that is variant? How much of that is training? How much of that is circumstance? And, and by circumstance or, or training... So, for example, when I, I was talking in another interview with an early Model F-16 pilot, and okay. you, you may get to this, but I did not realize that there were essentially two secret tones. And, and you can hear that in our intro to the show earlier with some audio yeah. provided by Sunshine. Sure. I didn't realize there were two secret tones 
one that said the missile says i see the target and yep. then the missile says well i have enough to now lock onto the target so so what was what changed was it technology was it training All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Thanks for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast and this Authentic Media Snapshot. If you like what you heard, head over to Authentic Media on your favorite podcast platform for complete episodes and a whole lot more. We'll see you next time. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.